Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. We have another episode of Board Gaming with Education. Super excited to have Christiane Hens on the episode today. I actually had the opportunity to meet her in person this past summer at Indicade, which is a game design conference. And there was also an opportunity to attend the education track. And so a few of us gave some presentations. I was among one among them, as well as John Cassie, who's been on the show, and Christiane. So I had a chance to meet her. And in her presentation, she talked about what to think about when designing a gamified course. Um, she gave an example of going through the design of her course. And on this episode, we chat about that. So really excited to talk to her today. Some things going on with Board Gaming with Education before we get into the episode. Again, if you are in the Los Angeles area, be sure to reach out to us on Facebook, like our page. We have some events and programs coming up and going on right now, actually. So be sure to like our Facebook page for that. Also, if you want to support our podcast, you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can like us on social media, share our episodes, support us through Patreon, become a Patreon and support our show financially. A lot of different ways. You can find that information at boardgamingwitheducation.com slash support. And one way this episode is made possible is through our sponsors. Our sponsor for this episode is a game called Facing Off. So this is a really cool social all-play role-changing party game where you compete to describe, sketch, and bet your way to victory in two minutes. It's really fun. Grace and I had the chance to play this at one of our board game events. We had a blast. There were a lot of laughs. It was really cool. And for any of those educators out there, there are some soft skills that you develop playing the game through a mechanic in the game where you change teams throughout, but you're actually trying to win individually. So you have to learn to play as a team for short term. Helps develop language and vocabulary and communication skills. Excited to talk about that more in a future episode. So be sure to check out Facing Off on Kickstarter. It will be on Kickstarter February 11th. So depending on when you are listening to this episode, you might be able to go to Kickstarter right now and search Facing Off to check it out. So thank you to our sponsor, Facing Off. All right, now let's get into the episode. So welcome again to Board Game with Education. I'm super excited to have a special guest that I had the opportunity to meet in person at IndieCade this past, that in the summer, I think. Christian Hens, and she is professor at Southern University Edwardsville outside of St. Louis, and she specializes in Japanese history. So we'll learn a little bit more about her in a moment, but before the interview, I had the opportunity to do a little bit of digging on the internet, and I found that you have, or you had, or you are currently a roller derby player. <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, I do. I play roller derby. That is with, I see, St. Louis Arch Rivals. Was that the name of it? Arch Rival Roller Derby. That's right. Ranked fourth in the world. Woo! Oh, really? So what got you into roller derby? 
oh, a midlife crisis. I turned 48 and realized that I was not going to get a cherry red Maserati between now and the time I died and thought, oh boy, I better hurry up and do something fun before, you know, I'm too old. And so I just, uh, I Googled it and fell into it. I didn't realize it was such a, a hardcore league. I just thought it'd be fun to kind of fool around with it and then, you know, got pulled in pretty hard. So four years later, I'm still doing it. Right. And you stumbled into the fourth best team in the world. That's awesome. I did. It was an accident. <laughs> I'm the oldest person on the team. so. Oh, really? Was it challenging to get started or was it something that you kind of got going with and you felt it was a very natural thing? No, incredibly challenging. Um, I didn't have any roller skating experience. I mean, the last time I roller skated, I was maybe 12, <laughs> you know, and uh, but they take you from knowing nothing from the ground up to being able to play at a very high level. It took me about a year to be allowed to actually hit people and knock them down before they would let me, before I was safe in terms of maneuverability. Um, and then after that, you know, after you get that basic maneuverability, then you know, you're good to start to play. So, but they trained, they train you from the ground up. Awesome. So you are also, so by night you're a roller derby, but day you're, you are a university professor. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah. So my specialty is history of modern Japan, but I also have uh, minor fields in world history and business history, which I don't teach that much. Um, and I also uh, have a lot of training in history theory. So I teach courses from the undergrad to graduate level that deal with world history, Asian history, Japanese history, history theory and method, uh, and, and things in, the, in that area. I'm interested particularly in material culture, economic history, those kinds of things. Yeah, material culture, business and culture and how those things relate. And that actually carries into what I teach in terms of gamification as well. So all of that stuff, that's what I do. Yeah, and we first met, we were kind of chatting about, I had lived in Asia and you said you lived in Japan. And a lot of that, I guess a lot of culture and history, those topics are very interesting to me as well. So you're on the show to talk about games, which is really great. Do you play any games in your spare time? Because what I found is a lot of the games that I play in my spare time end up transferring over to what I do or how I use them in the class. What kind of games do you play in your spare time? Well, you know, I, I limit my World of Warcraft time to summers um, because I have an addictive personality and it's very hard for me to pull my head out of uh, you know, intensive gaming space to parent and then to, you know, keep a job. So I limit my gaming to then. And, you know, I'll do some things at home with the kids like Othello or, you know, Mice and Mystics or things like that at home on a, a small scale. But most of my gaming experience that comes directly into my teaching comes from uh, when I was doing D&D or various sorts of tabletop RPGs from high school right up until I finished graduate school. So, you know, I did a lot of that then and don't play as much of it now because between parenting and teaching and roller derby and gardening and other things that I do, uh, I don't have as much time for, for playing myself. But, you know, a little bit of, of tabletop with the family, but not much intensive like it was when I was younger. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel you there. I I also save my video game playing mainly for the summer, and even then, I don't get as much in as I would like to. 
Right. I have to be careful <laughs> because I'll look up and the summer will be gone and I'll have been like, oh, I'm on level, you know, 10 gazillion, but I won't have done other things like hang out with my kids or, you know, like talk to my spouse, you know, things you're supposed to do. So what was, I guess, the most recent time you had played an RPG game or do you play any games with your kids at all or maybe your spouse? Like a uh, tabletop role-playing games? Yeah. So the only tabletop role-playing game we've been playing recently is Mice and Mystics. Oh, no, that's not true. That's not true. So um, we've been playing The Silent Year, which I acquired for the first time at IndieCade and enjoying it very well. Um, it's particularly suited to my kids and to my husband, who's not a big RPGer, because, I don't know, it's, it's thoughtful and it's not competitive. And we're a pretty competitive group of people and have a lot of competition anxiety. So games that aren't about explicitly about winning and losing, um, those do best in our family. They, those do m much better in our family than, you know, other games that in the past we've tried to play, you know, risk would result in tears here. You know, this is not, <laughs> it's not a good monopoly. No one has fun with monopoly. No one had fun with, you know, uh, shoots and ladders when we were little kids, never. So that style of game is something that I'm going to be looking more into. I have another one that I'm interested in looking into. Oh, what's it, what's it called? Oh, it's, it's a game about linguistics and, and languages that die. Uh, I can't think of it right now. But anyway, I'm looking at some other non-win-lose style games. Those interest me very much at this point in, in my family life. Right. And I think maybe we can talk a little bit about how those are great for the classroom too, because sometimes the competitive games can become toxic and not Really, the competition becomes the focus instead of the learning. Right, right. I, I actually have stories about that just from this semester's version of Gaming World History, where I found that to be a problem with uh, some students. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that after we share, after you have an opportunity to share what the World History course is. Uh, what got you started with? So you have the whole, because I sat in on your presentation at Indicate, and it was really, really awesome if you... If anyone has the opportunity to see you present, I recommend them checking out your presentation. And you had designed a whole course. What, I guess, what made you get started with gamification in the first place? Well, like I said, I've been playing D&D &D a really long time. And I mean, I started DMing, I guess we called it DMing in those days, in high school. And for some crazy reason, that club became very popular. And we had something like, 25 or 30 people wanting to run dungeons simultaneously. Like, and I, I would run du dungeons with 30 people and it was extremely difficult. Right. So I have already had some experience of multitasking and managing large numbers of people through uh, open ended, you know, a, a world that I built with plot, multiple plot lines running simultaneously. So I already had that kind of experience, but it was really clear to me when I began teaching ancient world history, that is like from Paleolithic period to about 1500, it was really clear to me right away when I started teaching about the Paleolithic period that this was ripe for an RPG kind of system. Like it just, it, it made sense to me. It's, you know, I'm interested in, from a world history perspective, I'm interested in a material culture, uh, historical materialist perspective, which says that what human beings can do or the choices that human beings make are very much shaped by the environments that they're situated within. So it, it was very clear to me that a map-based game 
connected with that idea. Like if you are a hunter gatherer living in a particular kind of ecosystem, then that determines what kind of political economy you can build. If you're in a a desert savanna or dry savanna, then that's a different kind of political economy. And the idea that I could have people, I could model through a game, the political economy of, of gathering and hunting by having them move through an imaginary space, right? And encounter various sorts of challenges. Like this was a no brainer to me. All I lacked was the the belief that anybody had done it before, right? I, I wasn't aware at the time that gamification was a thing. It had been something I'd been noodling with in the back of my head since before I got tenure, but I didn't dare to fool with it before I got tenure because I needed to, you know, I don't know, meet a certain standard of teaching. And there's a degree which I didn't want to take risks uh, before my career was, you know, safe. So after I got tenure, I'd been teaching this world history course. Incidentally, nobody else wants to teach it, right? Um, And so I was teaching it again and again and again, like lecture discussion, lecture discussion. You know, I'd been doing this for almost eight years, every, what, twice a year, every semester I was teaching this course and I was bored. I was deadly bored. And my students, (laughs) I'm sorry to report this, but that bored professor is bored students. Is that, I mean, that seems like, like obvious, right? So I was thinking, okay, no one is going to teach this course, but me for my sake, (laughs) for my sake, minimally, I can experiment with this and actually see if it works, okay? And then I mentioned that I was thinking about this to uh, Dr. John Cassie, who you met. He's somebody that I was in uh, grad school with at Ohio State, and he and I were gaming partners. We gamed together. And I said to him, look, I'm teaching this boring course. I think that I could treat this like an RPG. And he goes, wait, let me send you the galleys for my book. I was like, what? And then we started talking. And then I realized, (gasps) This is something people do. I'm not inventing. I'm not, I'm not coming up with something without any kind of precedent. And then I started to root around in literature and try to read like, oh, people are doing this. And then I thought, well, I might as well experiment and see if I can't build something that makes sense for the course I'm teaching. I didn't use anybody else's pedagogy for a model because I couldn't find that much about gamification pedagogy for the university classroom. Most of the pedagogy that I could read was for K through 12. And so, you know, I felt like the parameters were different. I felt like the content was different. I was, you know, uh, I don't know, the tasks that we're asking university students to do may not be the same as the tasks that, uh, you know, people are asking K through 12 to do, at least in history. So uh, I kind of jumped in with both feet without any kind of model. And that was both a, a benefit and a bane <laughs> in the sense that I didn't feel constrained beyond my sense of what a game mechanic could do or my knowledge of existing game mechanics from games I had played. But also it was difficult in the sense that I didn't know what I couldn't do and I didn't know the most efficient way to do it. So uh, that's how I got started. And th- this is uh, four, five years ago. And I worked on design for about a year. And then I was trying to see if I couldn't get a, a small class to run it in, uh, like an honors class or uh, what we call an interdisciplinary studies class that is a, you know, a class of 20 to 30 people. And I couldn't get one. And my world history class is for 60 people. And I thought, you know what? I'm never going to learn if this will work. 
I'm never going to learn how to teach this stuff. I'm never going to learn how to retool the game unless I run it with the students I have. And uh, that's what I did. I, I ran it with the students I had and uh, 60, 60 students. And then here I am four years later still doing it because I, I think that it has a whole lot to offer. Not the world's easiest pedagogy, but it has a lot to offer. I was going to say that. I mean, that's really cool. You mentioned that you had designed it for about a year. And I think that's an important point. A couple of important points to make or that you made to iterate is that you designed it, you were working on it for about a year. And then also you had to, you had to implement it to see if it works, right? You couldn't just have it in space. No, you had to take the risk of having it fall apart. There's, <laughs> there's no other way to know. You know, I beta tested it with some friends a couple of times, sloppily, you know, but there's nothing for, I think that probably that first iteration of it was not, the students didn't get out of it what I, what I need them to get out of it in terms of my full sense of what the class should do or what the class can do. But I know when we started the class, I said to them, look, I'm experimenting and you're teaching me how to do this as much as I'm teaching you anything about world history. And let's see what magic we can make. And they were on board with that, right? And we had a really good time. So I learned a lot by taking the risk. The same way that I think students learn a lot when they take risks in class. So, you know, I was modeling what I was teaching, you know, in that sense, that risk taking and not knowing um, and testing (laughs) is what we're doing in a classroom. That's what we do. That's, I mean, that's super cool. I think even for myself, I would love to have been one of those students that can kind of go on this adventure, whether it's for gamification or like something different that a professor is testing out and trying out. I would love to be one of those students to kind of give feedback for. Well, I did focus groups after each iteration of the course. I do focus groups and students participate, you know, without extra credit. They have, I've got hours of focus group conversations with their suggestions and their critiques and um, their impressions and what they found frustrating, you know. uh, So I got a lot of data, just, you know, research data out of their experiences. So it's been, and I did a lot of assessment work also to see, okay, what is it that they're learning? Where's the game functioning? Where's the pedagogy functioning? Because those are two separate things, right? So that I have data that I can actually use to retool um, and hopefully to have some insights for other people who are trying it. Yeah, having insights for the people who are trying it because it's it's a scary thing to jump into without, I don't know, I, I wish I'd had a little bit more support from people who knew about it. I didn't meet other gamma, gamifying ed- educators until after I'd been doing it for two or three years. <laughs> oh, other than John, right? I hadn't talked to anybody. I mean, Indicate is the first time I actually was at a conference or maybe the second conference I was at. That was the second one. So yeah, I... I'm really glad to have finally met people like you. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. No more reinventing the wheel. You know, somebody teach me. Right. I mean, that's that's what, what we're doing here at the podcast. I mean, you just mentioned something that I think I, well, you taught me something that I hadn't done is in my classes, I would do a survey, but I hadn't considered doing focus groups to just have a conversation about what's working, what's not working with the gamification part of the course. So I think that's really awesome and good that teachers can implement if they are using a gamified course, sit down with your students and ask them what's working, what's not. Maybe there's a way that they, that your students see they can take advantage of the system. Well, give them some extra credit if they can tell you how that, how that works. 
No, that's absolutely right. That that's absolutely right. I mean, that's that's critical thinking right there, right? So that's all. It's all good. It's all good. Just throw it all in there. And I wonder because I had ran into the similar problem as you when I was thinking about gamifying my university course. There wasn't a lot of information outside of K through twelve, and I wonder where did you start as far as your framework? And my example, I had. Finally, came down to using Sherlock Holmes as the theme, where students were all forming detective groups, and they were reading different, I guess, mysteries or cases, and they had to solve the case. And that was like reading comprehension as well as working in groups. So this was kind of added on to what we were already doing in the course. And then I combined that with knowledge points instead of XP, so they would earn knowledge points for completing other tasks. So that kind of theme helped me frame my gamification course and semester. I'm wondering where you started with yours. Well, you know, at the time I didn't realize that I was doing this correctly, but it turned out to be that I understood that I wanted my students at the end of the course to be able to write the definitive political history of the X empire, right? That is that by the time you get to the end of the course where students have experienced evolving political economies from Paleolithic all the way up to universal empire, that they should be able to look at each other's imaginary empires and write historical materialist interpretation of all of the things that had happened that had led to the birth, growth, decline, or collapse of that empire. Okay. And it was really clear to me that they needed not, I I needed not to model the real world. So if you go out and look in the kind of historical game genre, like you can find games that model ancient Rome, that that's out there. You can find games that model, you know, the Pacific war or, you know, any, any number of, you know, flashpoints in history. Okay. But students already think they know something about those things. So if you say, we're going to play modern, we're going to play ancient Rome, they already think they know what happened in ancient Rome and they'll just try to reproduce that. So I had to get, because I'm teaching from a position of theory and application, I wanted them to get outside of the human world into a make-believe space where then they would have to put into effect the theories that I'm, I extract for them from the real world, right? So then, you know, they're going to have the, I don't know, the Umba Doomba empire over here and the, you know, EBZB empire over there. And I want the Umba Doombas to analyze the EBZB's empire. And if they understand the, the theories, the anthropological, historical, sociological theories that are in place, they should be able to interpret each other's, the stories of each other's, each other's empires. But that meant this. That meant that I have to have each empire build, or not just empire, from city-state through feudal state through empire, whatever kind of political history occurs in that area in each of the individual empires, those states, those working, those teams have to develop a body of historical data that the other teams can use to analyze, okay? So I know that I needed each empire to do things like make codes of law, make odes, epic tales, maps. I use things, my favorite, my, one of my favorite assignments is they have to do graffiti, right? Art, songs, work songs, all kinds of things like this that become the, the, the data that uh, uh, an imaginary historian from another culture could look at and say, oh, right, this is where this empire or this emperor or these emperors 
excelled. Here's where they failed. This is where they failed to apply these principles and this caused their empire to collapse. This is where they failed to parlay correctly with the, you know, the pastorist nomads on the borders who were threatening to invade them. So I needed them within the context of the game to produce material that could be used as historical data so that they could then perform the work of being a historian, which is to go through an archive, excavate information, interpret information, and then interpret it from the perspective of a particular theoretical framework, historical materialism. Okay. So I knew that, that that's the tail end of what I needed the games to enable. So the game becomes the vehicle in which students create historical documents and then they swap, they swap empires, right? So empire A then gets all the data from empire B and then interprets it. So that's the kind of task that I knew they needed to do at the end of the course that then I had to front load the rest of the course to do. said at the beginning that you did it right. And that's 100% what we should consider as teachers were designing for that learning outcome first and foremost. And then what do what kind of mechanics can we help provide that learning outcome or provide an environment that gets our students there? Well, it's a kind of scaffolding, right? I mean, in a sense, you know, you use kind of basic pedagogical term. Yeah, you have to scaffold to get to where you want to get. And I think that I probably started when I first started, I was very excited to deal with gathering hunting because that's the first content seduction <laughs> that made me say, oh, this is gamifiable. Oh, this this is an RPG. And I started noodling with that first. And about, I don't know, several months into world building, I began to be able to see the end game, right? I didn't see the end game when I started, but when I, you know, this happens with, with world building when you do D&D or any other kind of, you know, RPG, you start to draw maps, you know, you start to color in things and build roads and put in ports and bridges and, you know, imagine some storyline. And then suddenly you have a novel, right? That just began with some graph paper and some pencils. That's where it starts. But then something is born later uh, after, with, with effort and with time um, that then you see, oh, I needed to start at the end. <laughs> Even though you start at the beginning, then you realize, oh, that's where I'm trying to go. And then you begin to build backwards. That's what happened to me. First, there was the seduction, and then there was the realization. Oh, oh, <laughs> I got to start at the other end. Cool. I, I do. I can totally see the hunting and gathering being something that would make me want to gamify a lesson for sure. There, it's very rich. It's very rich. What would you say is, or has been, the most difficult, or maybe still is, the most challenging thing for you in gamifying your course? Letting go necessity to be comprehensive. So if I've been teaching world history 50,000 BCE to 1500 for a decade, then there's a huge amount of data that has, until gamification, been central to what I think students needed to know. And with gamification, it seems to me that at least in the field of history, you become much more selective about what you can cover. And the sense that I'm losing content, I'm losing breadth for depth. That takes some, like talking to myself sternly, <laughs> that less is more, and that depth is a valuable goal 
as compared to just making sure that students know a little bit about Latin America, a little bit about Africa, a little bit about India, a little bit about Southeast Asia, a little bit about Polynesia, right? And it's, it's not that world history, well, partly gamification and world history go together because world history properly taught or properly studied is not a smorgasbord of, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that around the world. There's actually unifying theory that is much more real uh, in terms of what world history is as a field than what happens in an introductory world history class, which is usually around the world in 80 days, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I had been teaching it in a little bit of this, little bit of that way long enough that I feel a little bit like I'm short shrifting students because I'm not covering kingdoms in Polynesia, right? I'm not covering empire in the Americas. There's just not enough hours in the day. Now, it's a it's a partially flipped classroom. So there are at least 15 lectures that are online. And the more I groom these games, the more I retool and add layers to these games, the more I learn the most effective pedagogy for teaching through these games, the more content gets shoved into online lectures. And Online lectures is not necessarily the best way to teach a lot of complicated content. So that means that the total amount of content is decreasing while the application of theory and the critical thinking, the hard work of learning, that's expanding, right? So coming to peace with that has not been the easiest thing. That may not be the answer. There may be other answers that are better than that one, but that's the one that comes to mind. Um, giving up content for for quality. Right. It seems like there's a bit of a give and take both between the idea that depth is more more important than the quantity or quality over quantity, and then also that gamification helps to highlight some of that depth, you'd say? Yeah, yeah. The students don't think about history as something that you do or they don't think about history as something you commit, like committing murder. And they think about history as something you know, okay? That's how they've been told history is in the past. It's something that somebody knows and they tell you. But actually, history is something that people make. And they make it through active interpretation based on data bits that are somewhat random and somewhat selected and, uh, you know, a mix between those two, those two conditions. And so I'm making students make history, not just know it. And that's hard. It's very hard to look at a bunch of data and then figure out what happened here. It's very hard. And that's worthwhile. That's actually something they could use. If they never know that, you know, that the capital of, you know, of the Mauryan Empire is Pataliputra, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's Googleable if you want to know the capital of the Mauryan Empire, Right, the name of the you know Chandragupta Maurya, the the emperor who started it, that's Googleable. So you know it doesn't do them any good if I make that those details or that data the point of the class. That's that's nothing that is going to save the world, save save people from world hunger. That's not going to solve you know fascism. That's that's not going to make the world safe for democracy. So uh, you know I'm much more interested in teaching them analysis, critical thinking than I am making sure they know all the flotsam that happens to be in my head and in textbooks. It's not, not useful to me. And that's so, I think so much, I mean, it was important in the past, right? But I think it's even more so important 
because you mentioned Google and as teachers were content expertise is becoming less important, I think. Absolutely. And, and insofar as a brick and mortar schoolroom is going to survive the way education is moving, uh, we better think of something other than content to teach, right? Because content is available. Um, and content and thinking are not the same thing. And I think one thing we could talk about too is how games help teach other skills instead of diving into just content. But what kind of skills do games teach? Maybe you can share a little bit about what your students learn through the game that maybe isn't directly related to the content. Well, I think that students create hypotheses and test them. And then the way the scientific method works, hypotheses are meant to be disproved, not proved. So that means that you create a hypothesis, you test it in the game, like, oh, I think this is how to beat this boss, right? And you try it and you fail. And then you have to go, hmm, all right, now I have to, I have to, I have to modify my hypothesis and try again and then fail. And that moves you towards increasingly solid hypotheses. Now, there might be more than one way to, solve, to beat the boss, right? There's more than one hypothesis that might work. But students don't look at me and say, how do I beat the boss, Dr. Hintz, and then do it. That's what, that's what, lecture, that's what lecture discussion style uh, teaching teaches you, right? I tell you, I tell you the, the, the theories, I give you examples, I show you the primary documents, and then on a test, you tell me what I told you. I mean, to some degree, like, at its worst at any rate, right? This is me not telling you anything. And then after students have created hypotheses, tested hypotheses, had those hypotheses fail, recalibrate, try again, and then had a bunch of different outcomes throughout the classroom, then we debrief. Then we start to find out, well, gee, what was happening? What variables were moving in different ways that allowed the range of outcomes that we see in the classroom? That's, that's at the heart of, I mean, it's not that the scientific method is the only issue that, that is important, but this is one, that students generate their own hypotheses based on various data points that they're looking at in the game, and they test them, and they fail. And they have to be able to explain why they failed. That's, I think, one of the things that, that at least how my classroom is configured, that's, that's what's happening. That's one of the most powerful things that's happening. Would you say that most students, I guess one of my challenges with implementing games the last semester I taught University in Taiwan was a couple students, I would say probably like five out of my 200, mentioned on my post-survey or my post-semester survey that I did too many games. And I realized looking back, I probably, part of the reason was because I didn't communicate clearly enough that we're doing this game to target this type of learning outcome. We're doing this game because it teaches this uh, grammar structure, et cetera. Would you say that most of your students have a general sense that the game is there to help us learn in this way? You know, across different semesters, students have apprehended this to greater or lesser degrees. And within a single classroom, students have apprehended this to greater or lesser degrees. So I certainly have had students say, I don't know why. I don't know why we play that game. I certainly have had it happen. And two things are going on. I did not articulate, okay, this is what we're testing with this game, right? Or connect it. Uh, by asking some series of, you know, connective tissue questions, 
how is what we're seeing in the game similar or different to what you see in early agricultural societies or something like that? If if it's a failure of cueing on my part, then that's something that I can correct. But also, at least at the university level, I mean, I'm sure you've got some students who are (laughs) attending, (laughs) but which I, I mean, not just sitting in the chair, but attending with their they're present, they're fully present, and then they're able to apprehend what's going on. And students who are just in the room because they don't have any place else to be, or I don't know, whatever reason that they're in the room and taking a class. And so depending on the student's level of motivation, then they make the connection and hold the connection. And then depending on the clarity with which I articulate why we're doing what we're doing, then their ability to apprehend that is stable. But let any one of those things wobble, then it becomes unstable, right? So constantly cueing, constantly cueing about where we are, why we are, what are the underlying principles, what are the underlying theories that are are operating. Hard cueing is important. And then having lots of micro assignments where students can reconnect the game to history, reconnect the game to theory, reconnect the game to the abstract and to the concrete, like that kind of micro assignment that makes them, that recues and recues and recues them to connect this, that we're not in game land, we're not in la la having fun land, we're actually in class, it's really important, or else they'll just become about, you know, bonuses and, you know, modifiers and, you know, do these things stack and that kind of stuff. Like, uh, that's ephemera, that's not really what we're doing. That's especially a problem with gaming, students who have got gaming experience, Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've ran into that a couple times with, I mean, I designed a one one time game for negotiation, practicing different language skills used in negotiating with a different company. And I had one student, he was just like crunching the numbers in his head. And he had maybe called me out that the numbers weren't correct. I don't know, because I, I for me, it was like, the point of it isn't to like the game isn't the point. It's more just having the conversations with other groups and communicating and then presenting on what you did. That was important to me. But then after a student came up and I, I, cause I just kind of did the numbers roughly the night before the lesson. And I, I double checked to make sure it was like, at least to the extent where it wasn't obvious that you could do this to kind of like get ahead really easily. But yeah, I think, I think you're a hundred percent right. I've had people try to break my mechanics on purpose. Yeah. And it's okay. You can roll with that. I mean, that means they're thinking, you know, okay. They actually read the instruction manual, right? That's, that's a start. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah, that's true. They (laughs) they read through the rule book. (laughs) Right. Right. So before we move into the final segment, because we're kind of running out of time, do you have anything else, maybe last words of advice or anything else you'd like to share with our audience? You know, I've been asked a few times about how to start And I think it's really important to start small and slowly scale up. So if you want to gamify some particular lesson or or, or gamify some particular skill set, rather than gamifying a large subject or making a huge game, start with one, test it, see if it works, tweak it, then add more to it. Don't start too big. Um, because there'll be too much, there'll be too many moving parts to know whether or not any any single part is actually functioning. I think that enthusiasm can get in the way of of a game that works. And really, it's better to have no game than to have a game that doesn't work and a game that you don't know how to deploy effectively in the classroom. 
So start small, teach yourself to make that segment work, then add more segments. That's what's worked best for me. I would definitely agree with you there. And I wish, because <laughs> I am sure I was given that advice before I started, but it's so easy to get caught up in your brain just turning with gamifying something. And then it's like, oh, then I can do this. And then this would connect to this. Yeah. But 100% is starting small, I think, is the best way to kind of ease into it. Well, because you have to teach yourself how to do it. There's the game, but then there's the pedagogy. These are not the same, right? How to teach it is not the same thing as just playing it. And this is why I had that talk. So games aren't magic. Right? It's not you. They play the game and then get it. It doesn't work that way. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. All right. So we're going to go into our last question, and that's if you are stuck on a deserted island. What three board games would you bring? And I'm by myself, right? Uh, okay, so you're by yourself, but you have as many people on the island as you want during the game. So they magically appear, and then they disappear when the game's over. That actually sounds like an ideal vacation. That's, that's kind of good. <laughs> right. You know, I am a person who is soothed by patterns. I have a busy, noisy mind, and so patterns really help my mind to become calm. And so the games that I have enjoyed the most are things like Pente or Go, which is a version of Pente, or Othello. These are games that allow me to create patterns, search for patterns, manipulate patterns, um, and ha have small manipulable pieces. So they're things that are tactile, that are simple in terms of rules, but are deep in terms of complexity of patterns or potential complex patterns. So pattern recognition games are things that really uh, soothe me and make me feel happy. So I wish I could say something, you know, exciting, uh, but I'm afraid that uh, yeah, I'll play, I'll play Pente by myself. And actually I taught myself to play Pente alone. So, you know, it's complicated enough that I could play against myself and still be surprised. So those are, those are, those are probably my favorites. I feel so embarrassed because I should say something really fancy, like, you know, <laughs> I was hoping maybe Legos, but it's not really a game. It's a toy because I can play with Legos a lot, but that's a toy, not a game. I believe there is a oh man. I, I don't want to misspeak, but so someone might out there might have to look this up. There's a Lego game, not a Lego game, but like a way to gamify your Legos, if that's the correct way to say it, but or make a game from your Legos. I didn't need to know that. I'll have to Google it, yeah. Okay, yeah. What about you? If, I'm just curious. If you were on an island, what would you play? Am I allowed to ask? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say I've been saying Gloomhaven a lot recently. It just really stinks because we moved back to Los Angeles, so my wife and I, we don't have a game group anymore. Oh, that's painful. We've been playing a couple of games together, but yeah, so there's not, we haven't been playing a lot. I was just at PAX Unplugged and we got to play Scythe. I really like Scythe a lot recently too. Just gonna say I like a lot of competitive, but like with people that are competitive in a way that they want to win, but they're not like uh, over competitive where it's the end of the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you can tell my games are from the 1980s, right? That's the height of my game playing was in the 80s, 90s. I mean, if it's if it's relaxing, I think that's important. It's something that you can do and kind of just really get into and if that works 
for you if those are the games that do it. I think that's great. Well, I hope people will look them up because maybe they're too old school for people. You know, I mean, Pente, that's pretty old. Othello, that's pretty old. But, you know, because I, I read Japanese, then, then Go is like automatically of interest to me. And again, it's a pattern recognition issue. And also you can kind of make stories in your mind as a way to memorize the board and things like that. So that's, that's, that's fun in its own way, too. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with Penti, so I'll have to look that up. I know Othello and Go, um, but you said it's like Go, so I kind of, I can kind of picture it in my head, I guess. Spatial. It's a spatial game. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you again, Christiane, for coming on the show and sharing your insights. I think it was super interesting to hear about your gamification course. Like I said, if it, you ever have a chance to see her present, definitely check her out. And if someone wanted to reach out to you, where could they find you? Right. The easiest way to find me is at my university email address. That's C-H-I-N-Z, chins, at S-I-U-E dot E-D-U. Also, you can check out my Gaming World History website, which is still under construction, but you can reach me through that. That's Gaming World History, one, one phrase, dot com. And uh, you can reach me there. Super cool. I will definitely leave that in the show notes as well. And you said that site's coming along. Is that something people can go to now for resources or is that something that will be available in the future? No, no, they can go there now for resources. It's just still uh, being, it's still in progress. There's still more material to add and some things to edit, but it's there and it's functional. So thank you so very much for inviting me. I feel really, really honored. No, thank you. Before we end the episode today, again, I want to thank you for listening thank you for engaging with us on social media thank you for supporting board game with education if you enjoyed the episode please consider leaving a review on itunes or anywhere else you listen to this podcast it really helps with discoverability or helps other people find our show so if you did enjoy the show please leave a review and again before we take off remember check out facing off on kickstarter depending on when you are listening to this episode it is available on kickstarter february 11th it is a all play role changing party game so you are competing to sketch a face that you cannot see you are competing to sketch a face that you cannot see so someone is describing this face to you and you're trying to do your best at sketching what they are describing it is an absolute riot i had a lot of fun playing that at one of our board game events so be sure to check that out on kickstarter now and until next time Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time.